Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly sunny skies for now. Rain is expected later today. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll hear how MARTA, the airport, the city of Atlanta, and a nonprofit are coming together to help those seeking shelter inside Atlanta's airport. Now it just provides us with a, a meaningful way to engage with these individuals, and there's a place for them to go. What we understand is that it takes time and trust uh, for these individuals to actually seek help. And now that we have these teams kind of at the airport and at Garnett, uh, it gives us a means to kind of collaborate better and, be, you know, be able to kind of address the situation constructively. That conversation in just a moment. In other news, a third man has been arrested by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation regarding the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. 50-year-old William Bryan Jr. faces charges of felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Brian recorded the chase of Aubrey and the fatal shooting. Two men, Gregory and Travis McMichael, have already been charged with murder and aggravated assault. Brian has said he was only a witness to the case. GBI Director Vic Reynolds addressed this at a press conference earlier today. I, I, will, I will say this, again, not speak on the facts. They'll come out in a court of law, but I can tell you that if we believed he was a witness, we wouldn't have arrested him. You know, so there's probable cause and we're comfortable with that. Yes, sir. Director Reynolds says he does not anticipate additional arrest. Following a series of reporting errors, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says the public can still trust the state's COVID-19 numbers. First of all, I just want people to know they can be confident in the data, but also, look, we're not perfect. We've made mistakes when we do that. We'll own that, change it, and make sure that people are aware of that. This comes after much scrutiny regarding how Georgia's Department of Public Health collects and communicates coronavirus data. Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey says changes will be made. Meanwhile, as of 10 a.m. today, there are 41,127 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,783. And there are 7,294 hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now, we just heard from Atlanta City Councilmember Antonio Brown on the city's plan to reach out to the unsheltered individuals at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. MARTA will play a role as well. The state's largest transit system will also be instrumental in assistance. Joining me now to explain this is MARTA's Chief Customer Experience Officer, Rhonda Allen, and MARTA Police Chief Scott Crayer. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Rose. Uh, Let me begin by asking you all, 
there's been so much made about Atlanta's unsheltered or, or homeless population, however folks would like to refer, uh, but this isn't new. But during this pandemic now, during this COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen an increase in a number of folks just simply looking for shelter. And Chief, I'll start with you. What have you been seeing? Thanks, Rose. Um, as you know, and what I've, what I've really communicated to the officers with MARTA is, is again, homelessness is not a crime. Um, we want to be a partner in this solution. Um, we met with airport uh, GM John Selden and his team we met with the uh, leadership uh, with the city of Atlanta to make sure that we were both on the same page. So we got together with Hope Atlanta, uh, Jeff Smythe and his team, and came up with a plan uh, early early April to make sure that uh, the, the increase in the homeless population that we're seeing on the trains continue to get the services they needed. So we felt like the Garnett Station was the best uh, first stop. Uh, we did our interventions there along with uh, teaming up with the Hope Atlanta staff uh, to offer services and to do interventions there before they even reach the airport. Mm -hmm. And then of course, <clears throat> the gateway is uh, right there off the Garnett station. So we felt, again, that was another opportunity to uh, direct them to the services at the gateway center if needed to make sure that uh, they had every opportunity to uh, get services if they uh, so desired. So. As you know, coming from Atlanta PD, um, I'm not new to this challenge with the airport. So it was important for us to sit down and talk to John Selden and his team uh, to come up with, with a plan together instead of um, trying to work against each other and what we're doing. So I feel like since April, we've had a very significant uh, increase in our interventions with the HOPE team. Uh, my officers report those out to me every night. Uh, and I've seen significant numbers coming uh, from those interventions, both at Garnett and at the airport. Uh, Rhonda Allen, what about you? What's your takeaway from all of this in terms of the number of people seeking shelter during this pandemic? You know, I think for us, it's uh, important to note that, you know, we've we've been partnering uh, with these individuals in Hope Atlanta for, for quite some time. And, you know, now it just provides us with a, a, a meaningful uh, way to uh, engage with these individuals. And, you know, because there's a place for them to go. Um, and so what we understand is that it takes time um, and, and trust uh, for these individuals to, to actually seek help. And now that we have these teams kind of at the airport and at Garnett, uh, it gives us a means to kind of collaborate better and, be, you know, be able to kind of address the situation constructively. Um, we don't want to have a punitive uh, means uh, when, we, when we deal with the unsheltered, but we want to have, you know, and engage them in a meaningful way and, and really connect them with the necessary resources. So I think this is a great opportunity now with everyone kind of working collaboratively together because of the pandemic. Uh, and we want to continue those efforts in the future. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because for clarity, folks are not ticketed or penalized if they appear to be unsheltered and they're seeking some type of shelter and they're riding the train. And then, I mean, this is despite if there's any other issues like causing a disturbance or anything. Do you all ticket or, or penalize folks for riding the train just to have some sense of shelter? Rose, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because there is some misinformation out there. <clears throat> MARTA's number one responsibility is to its ridership. And we wanna make sure that everybody's safe uh, while they ride MARTA during the pandemic. So we have uh, new policies in place for social distancing and to make sure that uh, we try to keep everyone, including our uh, 
rail operators and bus operators and all our employees safe at the same time. So I think there's some misinformation about how we deal with that. We do not uh, target anybody on a rail or bus station uh, because of their status. Um, but we do make sure that uh, anybody that's riding more to property is a ticketed passenger. So sometimes we'll check that. We've seen uh, cases where train cars uh, have people sleeping on the floors or sleeping across seats and we'll wake those individuals up. And, and if they don't have the proper uh, ticket or, or uh, rail pass, uh, we'll ask them to, uh, to leave the train. We do not arrest people for that just solely because they don't have a, a breeze card or proper uh, rail fare. What about individuals who were congregating at the airport seeking shelter? So that's where we uh, teamed up with the airport uh, GM, John Selden and his team, and of course uh, the Atlanta Police Department that have the precinct there. Uh, we wanted to make sure that um, at the end of the rail, which is at the end of the night, which is around between 1.30 and 2 a.m. in the morning, uh, we wanted to make sure that we were partnering with the airport uh, to ensure that uh, they didn't have a significant increase of, home, of the homeless population attempting to camp out at the airport. So at the beginning of our process uh, and our, our team uh, partnership with, uh, with them, we were seeing close to 200 individuals um, at the airport camping out overnight. So we wanted to make sure we uh, offered those services and did those interdictions prior to them getting to the airport to try to alleviate some of that stress on the airport. Ronnie, let me ask you this. Is there some type of training that you all have, have MARTA police go through just in terms of learning and knowing how to deal with folks who are unsheltered? And Chief Crayer may be uh, better able to answer this question when it comes to the what the training that, M- that MPD uh, gets. Um, but I will say that uh, because of the demonstrated success uh, that we've had here recently with Hope Atlanta uh, and MARTA, uh, we are looking to kind of team up uh, perhaps social workers or, or individuals from social service agencies with MARTA employees um, to engage them. And so there will be p- persons who are trained in maybe crisis prevention um, and, and other kind of social uh, impacts in, in, in dealing with these individuals. And so we won't rely so heavily on our staff to try to do that, but just to be able to, um, to to recognize them, engage them, and offer them assistance. Chief, you want to add anything? Sure. So we, we have the same type of training that APD provides. It's called Crisis Intervention Training, CIT. And all our officers and our uh, field protective specialists go through that training. Uh, it really helps the officer identify uh, whether the individual is having um, a mental crisis issue or substance abuse issues that we can direct them to the proper uh, services. This also helps us with uh, de-escalation. So when we do ask someone to either uh, leave the train or leave the station, uh, they're trained on how to de-escalate that situation if that individual tries to escalate the, uh, the situation. You both are well aware of Councilmember Antonio's Brown uh leadership on legislation as a whole as it relates to trying to help individuals specifically who are trying to seek shelter at the airport. Have you all looked at the legislation? And if so, do you have any concerns about it? And Chief, I'll start with you. Uh, I have uh, uh, read uh, read some of the legislation. I, I think it's important to know that uh, Councilmember Brown's uh, is truly uh, concerned about the homeless population. I believe uh, he mentioned in in one of his um, discussions that he had previously experienced homelessness in his life. So I, I, tr- I truly understand 
his desires. Uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it's not an easy solution for anybody. So I applaud him for at least attempting to come up with some solutions and we'll be glad to work with him, uh, the city council and the city uh, to be a part of that. Ron Allen, any concerns? No, I agree with Chief Crayer uh, in that we all have uh, the same goal here and you know, and that is to, to again, to provide assistance to those who are unsheltered. Um, I have read the, the resolution uh, for the city council and you know, I don't think that there's anything you know, in there that is is harmful, you know, to any of us. But again, it kind of provides an avenue again for us to to continue to work together uh, to address these situations. There has been some talk and concerns about, I guess, what you would call hours where folks would be allowed to to be on the train and taking the train into the airport. Um, the hours, I guess, moved up from 11 p.m. to 6 p.m. Does that concern you all at all? You know, Rose, I, I just, obviously the Atlanta airport is run by the city and their GM, John Selden. So I would I would just be, I would say this, um, we're here to support them. Uh, whatever they feel is, is a, a good uh, model for them. Uh, we'll certainly try to assist them as best we can uh, with our services to, to the airport. What additional resources would you all like? And Rhonda Allen or Chief, either one of y'all can answer that. We're partnering with the United Way's Regional Commission on Homelessness the downtown Atlanta Improvement District uh, and Partners for Home. Um, I think using all of our resources together, uh, we'll be able to make a dent uh, in the unsheltered population that's on, that's on MARTA. And it's more of the collaboration that's needed um, rather than maybe additional resources. It's all of us teaming up together to provide a solution. And MARTA may be a place where, where individuals can, uh, can come and, and meet up with these other uh, social service agencies. So perhaps we can provide a place, an, an office um, for them to, to gather since they're, they're known to be on our system. And then these other agencies can then pick up where, where we leave off and then offer additional resources to them, um, whether it's to provide um, um, services to help them with whatever barriers there are, you know, to entering into to homes in a more permanent solution. Summer is not far away. Ridership could increase when and if we all get to the other side of this pandemic. You will see an increase in ridership. Um, how hopeful are you all that this 60-day plan from the city of Atlanta will be successful? Yeah, I, I don't think we, we, we want this to end. I don't think this is going to be a, a, a short uh, a plan of 60 to 90, you know, 120 days. Uh, my plan uh, is to continue a solid relationship with APD and MPD in the Atlanta airport uh, and keep those lines of communication open all the time so we can address these as they come along. Uh, we've got a uh, return to work uh, plan in place uh, that we're working on now with uh, a group of individuals in MARTA to kind of ease um, some stress that we're going to see as we return to uh, a new normal. Uh, so we'll certainly include our partners at the airport and uh, APD as it uh, relates to this issue. Rod Allen, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I think this this time of, of low ridership uh, provides us with an excellent uh, opportunity to uh, to continue to we, we began these programs and, and these partnerships, and it gives us a, an excellent opportunity to continue. Uh, as Chief Crayer said, this is not a short term uh, or a solution. Um, we're looking for a, a longer term approach uh, to dealing with these these issues, and so um, we won't solve 
the problem in, in 60 days and we realize that and we don't expect to do that. And so we are um, looking forward to continued relationships and, and hopefully continuing to provide the, the necessary services that these individuals need. MARTA Chief Customer Experience Officer Rhonda Allen and MARTA Police Chief Scott Crayer. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rose. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I am Rose Scott. Well, America is open. Well, in a way, perhaps this Memorial Day weekend will tell the tale as to whether or not consumer spending will kick into gear. But maybe more importantly, will consumer confidence in businesses to provide a safe environment, will that kick in? And that includes Zoo Atlanta, one of Atlanta's most popular attractions, which reopened last weekend. So after one week, how did it go? Let's check in with president and CEO of Zoo Atlanta, Raymond King. Raymond, as always, good to see you via Zoom. Now, first of all, congratulations. I understand you all have a new, I won't say tenant, but you have a new, a new, new arrival, resident. a new resident. 4,300 pounds worth. <laughs> That's Mumbles a, the white rhino. Mumbles the white rhino. 4,300 pounds? Uh, what does a 4,300-pound rhino named Mumbles like to eat? Does anybody know? Uh, I guess a whatever. Bit of wants. Everything I would say is the best answer. <laughs> <laughs> Raymond, before we get into what's been happening since y'all reopened, let's go back. Uh, let's go back to the day before. And what were you doing? What were your concerns? The day before reopened, uh, frankly, did not have a lot of concerns. Uh, we spent uh, over a month planning for our reopening, not knowing when that would occur, but wanting to make sure we were prepared to do so in a safe fashion for both our teammates, our guests, and the animals. So um, it was extensive planning, uh, multiple conference calls each week uh, with all members of the team involved in the planning. Uh, we implemented you know, a large number of new policies and protocols to assure that it was gonna be a safe experience. Because frankly, you know, that was the number one criteria as to when we reopened, was when can we do that safely? So we've gone to time ticketing to control our capacity. So we're operating at probably less than a third of our capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, that allows us to manage the flow of the crowd. Uh, we've gone to a one-way route within the zoo. We've got uh, zoo teammates throughout the zoo helping guide traffic along with extensive signage, helping to manage the crowd, make sure people keep moving, that there is good social distancing going on. We closed all indoor facilities except for bathrooms. Um, so it's truly a walk in the park. It's an outdoor experience where there's one-way traffic, so you're not crossing uh, other folks. Uh, because the crowds are light, you're able to social distance. Uh, we're strongly encouraging people to wear face masks. Um, our staff has got full PP&E on. Um, so we wanted our teammates to feel good about it and the public. 
And I think the best uh, uh, gauge of that is the fact that the first day we opened, uh, we sold out all our time slots till about 3.30 in the afternoon. So people were clearly ready to get back out and they had confidence in the zoo and we have gotten nothing but uh, strong, positive feedback and people have been really impressed with all the protocols we put in place. And so, Raymond, just to be clear with the time ticket process, so no longer, or at least for now, will folks be able to just walk up and purchase a ticket or tickets in the past? Correct. They need to go to our website, zooatlanta.org, and they can buy a time ticket um, that allows them to get in in some 30-minute time range. Um, and there's you know less than 300 people an hour coming in at this point. So it's, it's very managed. Now, you mentioned just the outdoor facilities. Does that mean that I believe it's the reptile house and maybe some other enclosures where, where you have the birds and all of that? That's correct. That's not so the open. The reptile house is closed. The Willie B. Conservation Center is closed. Anything indoors. All the restaurants are, are closed. We do have some food and beverage being served through kiosks. Uh, the gift shop's closed. We've got some gifts sold through kiosks. Everything's cashless transactions. We really tried to... Uh, eliminate any touch points we could. So mm-hmm. all the statues, water fountains, those kind of things are all covered up so that there'll be no, uh, you know, touching. And I've been really pleased that the public has responded very well to that because in all honesty, it's not our best experience. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. like the fact that when you walk through, you can't see everything mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't touch the statues, but we had to assure safety. And the public has understood that entirely and not given us any pushback. In fact, they've, they've said the zoo looks great. Mm-hmm. Doesn't look great to me. It looks safe, but, you know, it doesn't look its best. But people have felt like it looked good uh, considering the environment. Well, Raymond, how would you assess? Because, you know, when we all come to the zoo, we want to stop, take pictures. We see the lions and the giraffes want to take pictures. So are you encouraging people if they want to do that, do it real quickly and then keep it moving? Because, you know, that's a big part of going to the zoo, being able to stop and point and have conversation about the animals and all of the other exhibits that we see. Yeah, we've literally got markings on the ground showing people where they can uh, stand that are separated by six feet from each other. So Mm -hmm. family groups can gather in that little circle. So they do have the stop, the chance to stop and observe. But at the same time, we are trying to keep the crowd moving. And so if we see a bottleneck develop, our staff will say uh, to help, you know, assure social distancing. Can I ask you to please move along? And also, Raymond, you all usually have shows like you may have a show with the birds and the, the parakeets and parrots and all that. Um, has that been on hold for now? Uh, yeah, you can't go, again, in any indoor facilities, but you can still see a lot of the birds. I mean, there, there are very few animals you can't see. It's really the reptile house is the only animals you really can't see. So it's still a pretty complete experience from an animal perspective. Well, I'm disappointed, Raymond, because you know how much I love the Komodo dragon. Well, he's outdoors a lot, so you can still see the Komodo. So oh, he's outside out now. All right. That's, that's my buddy over there. Uh, Raymond, did you walk around on day one that you all reopened? I did. It was it was it was a day of celebration and uh, we felt it amongst the crowd. Uh, People were really happy to be out and be with their families again and enjoying the outdoors and felt very confident. So, yeah, it was a it's I will say it's tough duty for our teams, you know, standing up all day long, you know, helping guide guests in the heat and stuff is not easy doings. But it was really important to us that we guarantee the safe experience. Were there any challenges or were there any measures you all implemented that 
you needed to say, you know what, let's change this or it didn't seem to work well for you all with this reopening? Yeah, we knew we'd have to fine tune some things. The really only thing we had to fine tune was just where any bottlenecks developed. So there were a couple places where we saw that if we weren't really managing the crowd, it would bottleneck. And so we you know, made changes in signage. We you know, blocked off some paths and put extra staff, staff certain places. So that's really the only fine tuning that was required is just to make sure that we you know, address any bottlenecks. And then over time, we'll be able to up our capacity as long as those bottlenecks aren't developing. Mm -hmm. But again, that's the ma major criteria is to assure that it can be a safe experience. Well, Raymond, you said over time. So what does that time period look like? And when will you all make a decision to return to your normal, usual day at the zoo? Or are you still just going to wait, take this day by day or month by month? I wish I had that crystal ball, Rose. I don't know that any of us has the crystal ball as to what the future looks like and when that happens. Uh, the, the key word we use internally is nimble. Mm -hmm. So we're watching the health data just like everybody else. We're hearing what the public health scientists have to say. You know, we're watching any local, state, you know, federal ordinances that are put in place, making sure we follow all those, listening to the audience in the zoo as to their comfort level and things. And that will really all collectively drive. And, I, you know, we started thinking there'd be a phase one, phase two, phase mm -hmm. three. I, I don't think there will be distinct phases. I think it will just be a slow evolution as the health conditions get better and the need for social distancing declines, et cetera. But, you know, I think I think we're in a new normal for several months. Well, Raymond, let's talk about staff. Were you able to bring back a good majority of the staff for this reopening? Yeah, we were able, thanks to the PPP loan we got, we were able to bring back all full-time staff. And we've now brought back about half of our part-time staff to help with reopening. And before the end of June, we'll probably have everybody back. Um, so that's felt good to be able to bring people back to work and people are happy to be there. Well, Raymond, speaking of the staff and the employees, are you requiring everyone to go through some type of symptoms check or how are you all handling that? Correct. Every day um, there's a checklist of questions that staff has to ask themselves evaluating whether they have any symptoms um, of COVID or not and take their temperature each day. So each day they've got to kind of self-report if you know any of those things are outliers and talk to their supervisor, at which point we're, we're telling them stay home until you know you're all clear. So yeah, again, that's for the safety of our own staff and the public. And we're fortunate we've not had any, any incidences so far of COVID within the staff. So, Raymond, it hasn't been quite a week yet, but how would you assess what the zoo was able to, to take in in terms of ticket sales and everything else? Did y'all have some projections you wanted to meet? Um, you know, we thought we would be able to essentially sell out this limited capacity. And what we found is when the weather cooperates, we can. That first mm -hmm. day was quite successful. And it's always hard to sell out a four o'clock time slot. But for the most part throughout the day, we were sold out. Of, of course, you know, uh, time has not been our friend at the zoo. It was a perfect storm when this crisis happened. And naturally, we had two months of beautiful weather while we were closed. And since the rain has returned. So we've had lighter days in the past few days, which has just made the experience feel all the more comfortable and safe. But we've certainly not been selling out the past few days when the weather has been inclement. I think we're, we're satisfied that the demand is there and the comfort levels there subject to you know, weather cooperating. What's that limited capacity number on a 
daily basis it's about for you? 2,400 people in the course of the day. It's about 300 per hour. For you all that during this that's time. Small. I mean, on bad. a big day, we can have 12,000 people in the zoo. So to cap it at 2,400 and also make sure it's evenly spaced out through the day. We, we like to say we, we have staffed the place and prepared as if it's spring break. But the typical day is more like a Monday morning. It's, it's, it's a pretty slow pace within the zoo. And finally, Raymond, as we wrap up, what do you want guests to know ahead of time before venturing out to the zoo? What they should do? Uh, uh, the, the A, that their health is our number one priority. Uh, two, that we do strongly encourage them to wear a face mask uh, just out of abundance of caution. And that's what public health recommendations are. Um, and then to, you know, honor the staff's directions and be respectful of everybody's distance. Um, some people take this more seriously than others. Mm-hmm. And so we, it's our job to make sure the folks that aren't taking it quite as seriously are respectful of others. And if folks arrive at the zoo and they don't have a mask, but they would like one, do you all offer? We do, right at the entrance. We've got them for sale. All right. Raymond King, president and CEO of Zoo Atlanta. The zoo is open, everybody. Raymond, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Rose. Thank you. Say hi to Mumbles for us, the new white rhinoceros. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. No drug or antiviral treatment for COVID-19 has yet been approved by the United States Food and Drug Administration. However, there is a potential treatment that's promising. It's called convalescent plasma donation. And it's also been called, quote, liquid gold. Well, what is it and how does it work? We'll learn in a moment. I'm proud to welcome back to the program Dr. Kent Holland, Medical Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program at Northside Hospital, and Dominic Piccinini, an Atlanta resident who recently recovered from COVID-19 and chose to donate his plasma. Thank you both for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Dr. Holland, let me start with you. As a medical professional and obviously someone who's treated patients with the coronavirus, I want to ask through your lens, what's been so complexing about the virus and the COVID-19 disease? Well, obviously there are many things about this disease that result in us essentially being overwhelmed as a nation as well as the healthcare service providers. But I think what's been very daunting about the illness is how contagious it is, mm-hmm. how rapidly it's spread through communities. And even though we thought we were ahead of the game when it came to the United States, it had already spread pretty extensively in the New York area, obviously parts of the West Coast, like Washington State, and just became, we were unable to contain it. Mm-hmm. And we, we certainly saw what happened in Italy with thousands and thousands of people becoming very sick and dying from it. We saw what happened in Wuhan, China. And I don't think we've seen anything quite like this, certainly not in my lifetime. Mm. Dominic, as much as you'd like to share, can you recall for our listeners the moment you knew something just wasn't quite right, you weren't feeling well, and what symptoms did you experience? Yeah, actually my wife, who never really got tested, she was not feeling well. And we were on vacation, as a matter of fact, in Florida, and we were supposed to fly home and we drove. So I drove in the car, I drove the car, and she was passenger. 
and she got home and she had the fever and body aches and all that. And so we're like, you must have it. But she never got tested. And literally it was seven days later that I started feeling similar symptoms. So fever, it wasn't, wasn't a severe fever, probably a high 90 fever. And it happened usually in the evenings for some reason. It was always, I was always fine during the day. I'm working from home because we had already shut down the office. I'm, all, I'm already working from home and I would be, feel fine during the day and then have dinner. And then right after that, I had a fever and I would take extra strength Tylenol, go to bed, wake up, feel better. And that went on for about four days. Mm-hmm. And then I remember it was like Sunday night and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm really not feeling well. And then all day Monday was one Tylenol after another, you know, every four, four or five hours I'm taking Tylenol. That Monday night I went to bed early, like 7 p.m. I was just not feeling good. I was, I had the chills. Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday were really the only days that I had a whole lots of body aches, you know, my back, my hips, my head, I just had a lot of body ache. And then Tuesday that day, I remember talking to my wife. She started talking about this plasma, donating plasma. And she said, you can't do it unless you get a test. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I-, I just want to test to make sure that I have what I have. Cause I just been watching so much of the news where folks that have COVID are fever one day, ventilator the next day. So I was just, that made me nervous because it was the worst day that I had felt out of the seven. So a couple reasons why I went and got the test or else I probably wouldn't have gotten it, but glad I did because I'm able to do this. If I didn't get the test, I may not be able to help contribute to the cause. But Dominic, someone listening may say, well, you are going to get the test. You weren't feeling well. This was going on. Why so reluctant? Because I didn't feel like I kept reading and hearing about And my wife would feed me information, you know, what's going on at the hospitals. And it was at that point where it felt like, especially in New York, where there was just a panic. And I didn't want to be one of the people to bog down the hospital to go get a test. And it was really about, if you can't breathe, come in. If If you just have a fever, just work through it. So I didn't feel like I needed a test. And I never really had the shortness of breath. Mm-hmm. I just I just felt like I didn't need to bog down anyone if I could manage it through myself. But those last couple of days, I just got a little nervous that I could go from, you know, 101, 102 temperature to being on a ventilator. I'm fairly healthy. I didn't think I would get there, but it just made me nervous. How long ago was that, Dominic? March 31st. got the test a couple of days later, which was about April 3rd. What went through your mind when you heard? You know, it was a sense of relief. I, it, I sort of knew I had it. My wife didn't get tested. So now we put two and two together she probably had it but after that day that I got my test I started to feel better and that's when she started looking into the fact of you know it's a good thing that you've got the test because now you can go do things with it mm-hmm. one the assumption is you're immune two that you're able to do a, a plasma donation which could help other people that are in a lot worse shape than I was so Dr. Holland let me bring you back into the conversation uh, something that Dominic just said now that he has contracted the virus and he's recovered from it, but he said something that now I'm immune to it. Do we know that that is the case once someone has contracted the virus, that they then become immune to the COVID-19 disease? The only reason 
Dominic got better was because his immune system cleared the virus. Mm-hmm. His immune system wasn't working, the virus would stay with him. And one of the ways our immune system clears the virus is by creating what are called antibodies. And antibodies are a protein that's made that specifically targets the virus to neutralize it or to kill it. And so we believe most people will create antibodies after they're infected with the COVID infection, assuming they otherwise are what's called immunocompetent. They're not, say, a patient with a severe immune deficiency like mm-hmm. HIV disease, or say they're one of our transplant patients, that they should be able to clear the virus over time. And then these antibodies can persist for years, if not your lifetime, but we don't know how long it'll last right now with COVID. Hmm. Let's talk about then how this process works and in, in the best way that you can describe this for our listeners and a public radio host. <laughs> so Dominic says, you know what? I'm going to donate my plasma. I'm going to go to Northside Hospital. And then what? What's the process here? Well, the reason the plasma is so important is plasma is the liquid of the blood. It's it's straw colored, mm-hmm. and our proteins, nutrients, etc., are within the plasma, and antibodies are in the plasma. And we know for the last hundred years that people who have been infected by a virus and donate plasma, we call that convalescent plasma, which means they've convalesced, they've recovered from the infection, they now have antibodies, and those antibodies can be passively transferred to another person who has the infection and give them immediate immunity. So the moment those that plasma is infused, they have the antibodies now to attack that virus. And this was this has been done for a hundred years. It started off there even before the Spanish flu, it was being done, but during the Spanish flu in 1917, 1918, several thousand people got convalescent plasma. It's been done to treat polio, measles, Ebola, hmm. virus outbreak that was in Africa. Mm-hmm. So this is, there's a long history of using convalescent plasma because in, in these most of the virus infections, we don't have treatments for. And so COVID-19 is another classic example of a very serious virus infection that's potentially life-threatening. And if we can give people convalescent plasma, we believe it's not yet been proven in controlled trials, but we believe that will abrogate the severity and life-threatening complications associated with the uh, infection, especially for Mm high-risk individuals or people who are very sick. So it's safe to say that Northside Hospital and there are other entities that are also involved in the testing of this. Through your lens, how long do you think it could take? How much more data is needed to get this procedure considered, I guess, an official treatment? Yes. Yeah, so right now the Food and Drug Administration, known as the FDA, has allowed plasma to be given to patients with COVID-19 under what's called investigational protocol. Mm-hmm. The patient has to sign a consent form and they have to meet certain criteria to receive the plasma. So right now they have to have severe or critical disease, uh, but there's even talk about now giving it, uh, it's in fact being given now people with high risk who have infection, who we know are likely to get very sick from it. 
There have been several thousand people now in the United States that have received the plasma. We've treated about 100 people here at Northside, which is one of the largest centers in, in Georgia, giving the plasma out. And we believe in the next few months we'll have some data to see how they're doing. Well, how long after Dominic had, in a sense, recovered from COVID-19 was then he eligible to donate his plasma? Or is it something that can be done right away? Is there a specific time period? After recovery? That's a great question. So a person with COVID-19 infection obviously has to get through their illness. And the FDA has stipulated that the donor who's interested in donating their plasma has to be at least two weeks removed from their last symptoms. And then we have to test them to confirm the COVID-19 virus has cleared, at least from their nasal passages. So we have to do a nasal swab. And if that's all okay and they're otherwise a healthy donor they otherwise meet all the criteria that you have to meet to donate blood then they can donate and the nice thing about plasma donation is we can actually freeze the plasma and store it for up to a year Hmm. so we can stockpile the plasma and the other nice thing about being a plasma donor is people can donate about every eight days uh, plasma donation so they, it's not just a one-time thing. If they want to come back and donate again and again, then we're able to do that. A single COVID-19 survivor can provide, it looks like an ongoing supply of plasma, sounds like. One donation might be able to be converted into three or four bags of plasma. So we give one bag of plasma to a COVID-19 patient. So one donor could possibly give up to three or four bags of plasma per donation. So that allows us to expand the number of people who could benefit just from one donor. Dominic, when you hear that, that you are possibly going to be helping save people's lives, man, what goes through your mind? It's, it's uh, the same thing I tell a lot of folks when they ask that question or, you know, how am I feeling? And I just keep saying it's just the, it's just the right thing to do. If you think we've got a bunch of kids and I can't imagine that if one of my kids needed plasma and it wasn't available because someone wasn't donating, just it wouldn't happen. But I mean, you got to think about like it could save somebody's life. And so that's why I just keep saying it's just a it's just the right thing to do. I feel good about it. I feel great about it. I'm not, you know, one of the heroes on the front line battling it every day, but anything I can do to help. You plan to donate more plasma, Dominic? Yeah, I think when I get back to Atlanta, we're not in Atlanta right now, but I did get the call from Northside to come back, so I'm going to make another appointment and do it. Now, the least they could do is give you a parking space. Dr. Holland, can you make that happen? Because I've been to Northside and parking there is... <laughs> That's a good question. So at the main campus at Northside, our donor center is literally inside the parking lot. We provide them a voucher to cover their parking costs, so there's no charge to them for parking. And we will treat them like a VIP person. <laughs> we really appreciate them coming to them. All of the workers on the front lines, as Dominic said, I think all of us can agree that they, too, are the VIPs. D- Dr. Holland, earlier when I asked you about what was complexing about the virus and the disease. And I want to ask you in terms of what do you hope comes out of this in terms of the future and how the medical world will be able to respond to something like this again? It's a multi-answer question because this virus is causing all types of complications 
beyond what we thought initially we were going to be dealing with. So it's an inflammatory virus. It causes tremendous amount of what's called cytokine release syndrome, uh, symptomatology in patients, which is why we think a lot of these patients become so ill and life-threatening illness. It increases the risk for blood clot formation, higher risk for strokes, organ failure, and there may be long-term complications that we're not even aware of that could be neurologic or other effects. And certainly psychologically, it's having a huge impact, not only those being infected, but those around us that are worried we're going to become infected. It's been a very devastating pandemic, I think, even though we're still in the early phase of it here in the United States. Long-term, we need to be better prepared on how we're going to handle these type of situations in the future. I think we have incredible people at the CDC that have devoted their lives to figuring out how to handle pandemics, but I don't think any of us anticipated we would be hit with something so devastating so rapidly as what we've experienced. And so I, I think next time we'll be much better prepared. And Dr. Holland, you all have been able to treat a number of patients. Have you noticed anything in terms of those who are receiving the plasma donations in terms of their recovery, if they have any pre-existing conditions? Have you noticed anything in terms of maybe age or ethnicity or sex that stands out to you in terms of how folks are able to recover after receiving the plasma donation? Right now, we just have anecdotal data. We're not at a point yet where we can collate all the information and come up with a objective review that we expect will be available in another month or two or three as we get more patients further out. But at least anecdotally, we're seeing a lot of patients benefiting. The first patient who received the plasma here at Northside was on a ventilator. The intensive care physician caring for him called us and said this was the sickest patient he had taken care of up to that point in time and was not anticipating this patient was likely to survive. And we were in the process of mobilizing the plasma program and shortly thereafter had a unit of, of convalescent plasma to give this patient and he survived and is now at the hospital and doing well. And he was an elderly patient. We've had several pregnant women who were very ill from the COVID-19. And as you're aware, when you're pregnant, you can't get medications frequently. So you can't get the, the malaria drug that certainly was sort of in vogue at that time, or remdesivir, which is the antiviral drug that was investigational and remains investigational, but looks promising. And they received the convalescent plasma, and I was at least told by their physicians that they improved significantly within days of receiving it. Hmm. Now, they might have anyways, but I'd like to believe that perhaps this was making a difference for them. Historically, we would expect it to, but again, we need to confirm that with objective data. And Dr. Holland, those who are receiving the plasma donation, because it is considered, in a sense, a clinical trial, so there's no cost yes. involved, correct? Correct. The plasma is provided free to the hospital and their patient. Dr. Kent Holland, Medical Director of the Blood and Marrow Transplant Program at Northside Hospital. I was also joined by Dominic Piccinini, an Atlanta resident who recently recovered from COVID-19 and donated his plasma. 
Dominic, glad you're doing well. The family's doing well. Thank you so much for taking the time as well. And Dr. Holland, thank you and all of your fellow workers for doing what you all continue to do during this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Rose, very much. And again, for anyone who would like to come donate plasma, they can call us here at Northside or the Atlanta Blood Services, and we will accommodate their schedule. All right. And we'll have a link to the information on our website as well. Thanks a lot, fellas. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dominic, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Holland, for all the good work you're doing. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.